All right, welcome to episode five of 1530. Um, today on air, we have our first guest with us. We have Dr. Stephanie Kowalczyk. Um, she, right now, she's working at Tennis Australia. She's a data scientist doing what we would all love to do, and that is get paid to work on tennis projects and to be immersed in tennis. And so I want to welcome her to the program, and we'll be talking about some of her work and some of the interesting findings that she's had. Um, Dr. Kowalczyk, do you want to share a little bit more about your background and where, I guess, where you got started and how you led to to doing tennis as a job? It's a pretty, pretty awesome job. <laughs> sure. Um, and thanks for having me, Ben. Um, so my background's in statistics, and that's what I did mostly in college. And so I um, went through undergrad at, at Caltech in Pasadena, and uh, then got interested more in the number side of science. So I was always kind of a science geek, thought I was going to do physics. Um, but then when I learned more about um, how we have to try to draw conclusions from data and approaches that people use for that. I got really interested in that part of sort of the scientific process. So was lucky to um, get an opening at the graduate program at UCLA. So I went through their, their stats program and um, yeah, I didn't really know what I was going to do. So I kind of just kept on going in school as far huh. as I could. And, and, uh, after that, was kind of looking just to do sort of a traditional track for like a biostatistician working more in, in health and uh, really like that. But at the same time, always was a tennis fan and like sports in general um, and, you know, played kind of everything I could when I was in, in school before I started to just focus more on the books. And um, uh, so yeah, once I started to know a bit more about, about statistics, I couldn't help but look at the game through that lens and just realizing how um, kind of little was changing in terms of the use of quantitative analysis in tennis. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, I just got more curious about what one could potentially do in addressing questions that would come up in commentary and um, in the media you know, what could data actually add to those conversations? And so I started to collect data um, from the web and just understanding what was available and what sort of research you could do with what data was easily um, accessible. And it, yeah, it kind of took off from there. So it was really just um, on the side, I guess, as a lot of sports sort of nerds, um, stats nerds, do you know it's it starts out as a passion and a, a hobby because most of us don't have these opportunities to do it full time and so yeah. I was doing that pretty I guess it got more hardcore probably um, for about two or three years after I'd finished up in grad school and um, um, and I was starting at that point to um, have papers just on questions in tennis and presenting at conferences. Um, and that was how I eventually learned about this opportunity at Tennis Australia, where I am now. Excellent. Well, yeah, we're so glad to have you. And it's an impressive background. So glad you made it to tennis as well. Um, and like you said, you've already published uh, a few papers and are working on some pretty cool research. So we definitely want to get into the meat of that. So the first paper that I uh, stumbled upon was 
um, is there a Pythagorean theorem for wins uh, for tennis? And that was one that you'd published, and, and that's how I kind of ran across you and and found out about that. So I want to kind of start with that topic. Um, so I guess why why did that interest you? We'll start with that, and then we'll get into more of the findings and how it is similar to baseball and what we found. So I guess why, I guess what led you into that research? Sure. So yeah, this was kind of an, an early one that I looked at. And I think one of the fun things about this one is that it shows potential crossover between the, I guess, it's almost become traditional sort of money ball type of sports mm -hmm. analytics, which has largely been based in the team sports, particularly in North America. So baseball, basketball, football. Um, those have been the places where we've seen most of the this kind of revolution in the use of numbers um, being advanced. And um, so coming from a, an individual sport and one where there really hasn't been that kind of dedication um, and interest in the stats, it was interesting to see, like looking to what the team sports were doing in that area and whether any of that could be applicable to tennis, which is you know such a different sport in so many ways from um, from any of these these team sports. Um, so the Pythagorean was one of the contributions of Bill James, um, and he first wrote about it in the late '80s. And the idea was, you know, could you find a way where you could set some accurate expectations for where a baseball team was? likely to be at some point in the season based on their results so far. Um, and the reason that it takes this name of the Pythagorean is that he originally proposed looking at sort of the squared ratio of a team's runs against the team, um, the runs earned by their opponents against them. Um, and that's what sort of suggested this Pythagorean um, relating to the relationship between the sides of a triangle. Um, so, so that, you know, was kind of a well-established result in baseball. And like subsequently um, there's been more sophisticated analysis than were done in the eighties to find like, what is the optimal coefficient to relate um, runs earned versus runs allowed to long-term win expectations. Um, so that, that was kind of the background. And it turns out that that result, um, not only does it do a pretty good job in baseball, but if you um, look for the kind of comparable relationships with points, one and other team sports like basketball, for example, you can find kind of a similarly accurate projections. So it seemed like this thing that was somewhat universal across these team sports. So it kind of naturally made you wonder, like, is there any way that you could do something similar? Let's say you're interested in a tennis player's um, likely win percentage over a season based on, you know, let's say some months of, of results that, may, that they have. Um, could you use this method um, to try to get an accurate projection? And at the same time in doing that, if you could find a relationship that would point out, let's say, what kind of measure um, during a match is indicative of um, sort of expectations going, going forward about that player's win ability. So it's almost like a, a feature selection. You kind of get it at the same time to find yeah. out like what's the most important thing to pay attention to in a match. 
So yeah, so the idea was like, okay, let's just look at what are the standard stats that are reported and, and try to find it. And it's what makes it interesting in tennis is that because you don't have to win every point to win the match, it kind of makes it unclear, like, well, what is the measure that you should focus on um, to find this Pythagorean relationship? Um, so it, it means that there's just kind of more, more options that you have. Like, run, it's pretty obvious that you would focus on runs in baseball because that is how, is, that's a definition of winning. But points isn't the definition of winning um, mm-hmm. in tennis. So, yeah, so that kind of adds in. But it, it turns out that you can find um, a stat among kind of the standard stats that are available in match summaries um, that not only does it show, um, does it have this predictive ability, but it turns out that it actually has a very similar relationship to runs and how they're related to these win expectations in baseball, which was really kind of kind of crazy when you think about it. And um, that stat is the breakpoints one. So we all know that that's like any any even casual tennis fan knows that that breaks are critical to matches. In fact, most players are going to win sets based on having the edge in breakpoints one. Um, the only exception to that is if it goes to a tie break and then it's going to be decided in a tie break. Um, so by and large, many matches are decided by um, the edge in, in breakpoints one and that kind of carried over to the findings in, in that paper. Right. Yeah. And I just, I found it so fascinating too, that, you know, your plus minus for wins was similar to uh, the Moneyball run, right? Like I said, I think it said in your paper that a typical season where you play 50 matches, your model with breakpoints could be within plus or minus four matches, which is pretty incredible. And I think it's also a great tool, just like for baseball, you can figure out if a player is over or maybe underperforming. I think of uh, Dimitrov last year winning Cincinnati Masters, his maiden Masters 1000, as well as the World Tour uh, Finals at the end of the season. And he had such a good season last year. This year, not so much. And so you could use that same model to say, okay, if he played like he did last year with breakpoints, was he overperforming winning too many matches? And this year, does he just did he just kind of have a level dip down for break points? So you can kind of see, okay, is this player lucky winning these close ones or is it the numbers really backing it up? So I think it is a great tool. Like you said, a little simplistic, similar to the baseball model, but it's still a cool um, result. I guess, are there any other uh, really significant results from this research that you found interesting? Um, from that particular line of research, um, I think probably the one thing that stood out was how unpredictive uh, first serve in <laughs> was. So that's one that in commentary you'll you'll hear talked about a lot, and there's like yeah. a real emphasis put on the first serve in percentage. But in reality, when you actually look at its relationship to a player's ability to win. Um, it just doesn't hold up as that important for the actual win outcome, presumably because players, you know, they kind of find the right risk um, balance on their their first and their second serve. Um, So the players that say have a stronger um, second serve can afford to take a bit more risk on the first, for example. Um, So that, that was one that we kind of, I mean, those of us that have been sort of looking at the numbers, like in my, in my team here at Tennis Australia, uh, we kind of 
already knew that that was likely to be the case, but it was, it's a nice one to point to as like an example that, okay, we really shouldn't be putting that much emphasis on this first certain percentage. Right. And that's interesting. Just like you're saying, that's one of those traditionalists. Everyone says you got to increase that first serve percentage, less pressure, less, uh, less double faults. Um, you win the point more often. And so maybe similar to Moneyball, right? Where people overemphasizing maybe speed or home runs and looking less at, oh, this guy can get on base and draw walks. And so maybe that is one of those one of those things where using data can kind of help us with our own bias biases. Because Stan Vavrinka, he comes to mind, his first serve percentage is, is pretty terrible. And the commentators always like to talk about that one. But like you're saying, his second serve is a lot stronger. So I think he has found that right balance. He's won several slams. So it's it's working for him. Uh, but yeah, that's an interesting result. Uh, I hadn't thought about that. Um, let's see here. So, and then I think we mentioned, or in the paper it talks about, so that coefficient was closer to 1.83, some, which is similar to baseball for the optimal coefficient. Um, I know in basketball and others, it's a little bit different. So you wanna, do you want to talk about that, how it's interesting that the breaks correlate to to the run scored in baseball and why that uh, why they work out that way? Yeah, so it turns out that, that that coefficient, which is basically what you would raise um, the numerator um, and denominator um, of the, the metric of interest. So in the case of tennis, it, let's say it's break points one in baseball runs. Um, it's what you raise it to. Um, so you can optimize that thing just using uh, actually a, a linear regression analysis to find that optimal when you're just looking at like one single measure. Um, and that's basically exactly what's been found. Uh, 1.8 turns out to be also kind of the optimal fit in a lot of analyses of the Pythagorean and baseball. Um, and that was what I found for the relationship with breakpoints one um, in tennis. And I think the explanation that, that um, for that is that they're just on a similar scale, I think. So there's been some subsequent work to kind of show that you can, um, you can find this um, relationship uh, with this, I guess, why is it that the, these coefficients kind of come to have this particular, this ratio form? Um, if you assume that the, the outcome of interest, so like runs or breakpoints, um, that those are Weibull distributed and independent um, for the uh, player versus their opponent or, you know, team one versus team two, um, that it kind of falls out of assuming that distribution, a Weibull distribution for those, those two um, variables. Um, so I think then the reason is really just comes down to that the fact that the number of breakpoints one is kind of a, a similar number you would expect as like runs that would be scored, you know, whereas that doesn't hold up in basketball where scoring is just so much higher in general. So you're, you would expect a much different coefficient because in a way that what that coefficient reflects is almost the importance like of every additional point earned, like an additional run what is its importance towards a match in general or a game in general in baseball? What is one additional break point one um, is importance in tennis. And those are much more comparable than like one additional, say um, successful shot in basketball. 
has less importance just because there are so many that happen in general. Um, so yeah, so I think it just comes down to that, the kind of similar scale. Right. <clears throat> yeah. Similar frequency. Yeah. I found that, found that very fascinating that those, those were almost exactly the same. Um, and so we know, so this Pythagorean theory, it's more of a, of a cool thought exercise, right? It's, it's similar to the baseball's model. And that's kind of where they first went from with their money ball. But we know there are, are better um, metrics out there for measuring uh, people's, I guess, clutchness, you could say, or, or how well they get the job done. One of them are pressure scores. Do you want to talk a little bit about pressure scores and what, what factors are in there? I know breakpoints are part of that. Do you want to talk about those? Right. So, so traditionally in tennis, there's a lot of focus on, on breakpoints as sort of a measure of how players handle pressure. Um, but we know that every point conveys some information about, about pressure. For example, um, it, it would be silly to say that, you know, a 30-all point doesn't also tell you something about how a player performs under, under pressure. Um, so we've been, um, we've developed an approach that assigns a pressure value to every um, point um, in a match. So it accounts not only for the game situation, the scores within a particular game, but also where that game sits within um, a set and then where that set sits within the match. Um, so every single point gets a weight effectively that represents its pressure. And that pressure measure is just um, a probability measure of how much losing the current point would um, influence the outcome of the match. So it takes more of a perspective of like, what if you were to lose? The idea being that players are more sensitive to potential losses than potential wins. Um, so anyway, so you're essentially looking at a probabilistic influence for um, every point in a match. And that then gives you the ability to differentiate those points that have more influence to the, the outcome. And then you can put more emphasis on how a player's performing under those higher pressure, you know, higher important importance points when you're doing any kind of um, performance evaluation. So if I want to know um, not only did, how did a player serve overall, but how did they serve on the most important points, then I can just take this weighted average that weighs all of the service points for that player by the pressure of those points. Um, and a lot of cool things fall out of that. So like one is just to look at the, the differential between the two players on um, you know, any measure of interest with this pressure adjustment. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that if you do this, so in a typical close match, let's say a match that ends up being um, separated by like six games or less between the players, um, if you were to just look at the difference in the standard serve percent one, it would correctly pick the winner. So let's say you assume that, oh, the winner must have been the player that had the higher overall serve percentage. That's actually only true about like 85% of the time in close matches. Um, and you probably, like a tennis fan that ever looks at the stats, uh, like you, Ben, like mm -hmm. you'll probably know that a lot of times you look there and you're like, wait a second, like this player was actually ahead, but they lost, right? You always have that kind of, this makes no sense, but it's because it ignores the, the variable importance of points. So when you layer in pressure and you look at, let's say the serve pressure differential, it's gonna get it right like 98% of the time. 
Um, So, so it's much, it's a much stronger indicator of a player's um, how exactly they ended up winning, particularly in close matches where, where it's less about just pure ability and it comes down more to how players perform on the most critical points. So that's one of the nice things. And then another thing that you can get out of it is just compare how a player does under pressure against their own overall average. So it's just like almost a within player comparison and that's what gets most at clutch. So if there's any way that we can try to get at uh, a, a true clutchability, a stat like that helps you to do that because you're basically saying, you know, how, does a player raise their level under pressure or do they tend to drop just compared to, you know, their overall um, um, average? Yeah, that's fascinating. Any, uh, any players that stood out as, as surprises? I know we always think of Djokovic as being pretty clutch. I assume he scored well, but any players that you were surprised to either be clutch or not, not very clutch? And under pressure? Yeah, well, well, one that stands out. So we, um, in the Game Insight group that I'm in here or gig um, at, at Tennis Australia, we do a lot of tracking. Of, we do metric development, like what I've described. So we're interested in putting together mm-hmm. new stats. And then once we do that, we do a lot of studies with them and like we track them over time. And, and we like to make like leaderboards and things to understand who's doing well on that measure or not. And one that stands out on the this clutch measure, which I think maybe most people wouldn't necessarily assume is at the top of the list. Um, we found consistently that um, Joe Wilfred Sanga, he always seems to end up like in our top five hmm. um, when we've looked at that, that um, over the recent years. Um, so that's a really interesting one because he's not, nece- you know, he's not the most decorated player um, out there, but there are, particularly if we look at like just overall serve, he does seem when he gets into those clutch situations, he seems to, to kind of consistently um, perform well. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. And then any that uh, you were surprised that didn't do as well? Well, I guess the one that probably there's already some some suspicion of, mm-hmm. and it would be it would be Roger Federer that um, that is an area where. When he does have losses, which aren't that frequent, but <laughs> when he does, it usually does come down to to clutch, where it's more about kind of him um, beating himself necessarily than than opponents than opponents beating him. So he, I think, wins. Well, what's interesting about that is that I think it tells us that he's dominated um, so much just based on like pure ability. Um, so like he can get away with sometimes not always taking the most out of these clutch moments right. just because his overall talent is so strong. Um, so, so I guess that's an interesting one um, that we found. Yeah. Yeah. That's super interesting. Um, and, and just like you're saying, like the, I think that the Anderson match against Federer in particular at Wimbledon, that was one where, pouring over the statistics it was very puzzling like you said for some matches you're like well how did Federer lose on every metric it looks like he should have won but like you're saying that the under pressure if there had just been a, a stat for that on the side it would have clued us in because Federer did have match points there he could have closed out in straight sets but the way the momentum went and a couple tie breaks he ended up losing it and it was one of the unfortunate ones where he actually won more points but lost the match it's so like you're saying that's why tennis is such an interesting game you can't just base it off the traditional statistics 
And so I just wanted to ask you, do you think we're going to see sometime in the near future some of these uh, more sabermetric or newer analytical ways of looking at the game part of tennis um, and see maybe some of the traditional statistics that don't tell us as much, they'll be less important? Or do you think we're still a ways from, from a revolution in tennis with, with statistics? I feel like we're really we're really on the cusp of some exciting things. So the the group here gig at um, in Australia, I think we're um, we've been putting a lot of things out there during the AO. So that's our host event where we get to um, we get to present these to audiences, um, and um, and we're hoping to expand that you know to other events over time. So um, we've been doing, you know, in-match forecasting. We have um, new physical measures, like measuring the overall work um, players perform with their lower body in matches, um, and some of these pressure stats that um, that I described. And we're providing those to the local broadcast here. And it's interesting. I'm, I've been watching, and I think we're really the first kind of that's gotten out of the gate on on measures like that. And um, it's interesting to see during the U.S. Open, for example, you know, the mention of like AI highlights from IBM. And I saw some mm-hmm. kind of win. I saw some predictions that were done for like who would be Nadal's, you know, toughest upcoming opponent. And so you're starting to see that filter in a bit now. And um, now on the one hand, um, I wish we were the ones that were doing that, of course, but, <laughs> but it's still exciting to kind of feel like, oh, it's all maybe sort of happening. And um, maybe, you know, we've made some contribution to kind of encouraging other events to get on board. And so I'm happy just to see that happening because I think it will add so much value to, um, you know, how we understand the game. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. There's so much to be learned uh, from the numbers that can, that can tell the story there. I was looking on the ATP website. I know now, so they have a serve rating, a return rating, and a newer stat that's a couple years old is their under pressure rating. So it adds this, the percentage of break points converted and saved, and then how many tie breaks they're able to win and percentage of deciding sets won. So not quite um, the one that we were talking about, like the pressure rating, but it is a similar stat uh, kind of ranking their clutchness. So I think like you're saying, we're starting to get there, but uh, I think we still have a ways to go. Um, so hopefully your group can can help us get there. Um, you want to talk about uh, the really interesting research you guys are doing with the emotions, capturing the emotions of the tennis players throughout the match? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so one of the areas we're really excited about is providing more um, numbers for you know the inner game, right? This is kind of like the classic intangible in tennis is the mental side. So it's something that there's always been a lot of um, speculation that how players um, think and the kind of temperament that they have on court, that that is important to their ultimate success. Um, But it's something that we don't really have a lot of evidence to support, like what is the role that um, that mood or emotion has in how players perform. Um, so most of what, now there are a lot of people out there that will tell you they know about mental toughness and what it means for mm-hmm. elite athlete performance. But if you really look at what's behind that, it, it, a lot of it comes down to just opinion and anecdote. So, so that's one area it's like, well, is there more that we can do to try to actually get some 
something quantifiable. And um, it's a challenging problem. But one of the things um, that we kind of see all around us these days is the role that machine learning algorithms have in identifying objects in video from images. So there's just so much um, that's been advanced now in um, capturing um, events of interest from images. So we've been looking at what are the ways that we can kind of exploit those kinds of tools and models to get new information and automate um, the collection of information from matches because there's all this video sitting around, um, but there's not a lot of it that's actually used to put into numbers that can be analyzed. Um, so, so we've been working on putting some models together to try to capture facial expressions of players in matches and then to um, use those expressions to try to understand, well, if, you know, I ask nine out of 10 people what emotion they think is being expressed and, and they, and nine of them agree that it's mostly anxiety, then that's maybe some basis to suggest that a player's likely feeling anxiety at that moment. So, um, so we've been training models to classify different emotions and um, have used them to look at some of the um, players that we have some expectations about their general emotional profile because they're um, the you know most talked about players, <laughs> um, and that gives us some way to kind of assess the face validity into the tradition uh, alongside the traditional kind of. Uh, training and testing for these types of models um, and they and our initial work suggests that they are giving us some meaningful um, measures so the idea is just continue to de develop that and hopefully put it into a real-time application where we can um, be able to capture that emotional um, information during matches which could help to um, further develop and improve on the models because we'll have more more player data, but then to potentially start using as like a stat that can be reported um, at, during matches and add to sort of our experience of, of the match itself. Wow. Yeah, that's that's so amazing. That sounds futuristic, but like you're saying, it's right around the corner. You guys are working on it actively. It'd be so interesting to see for players, like, like you're saying, sometimes commentators are like, oh yeah, this player, you know, the the umpire's call or something, they feel like it was incorrect and so they play angry and then they lose the set. Uh, but some players, I feel like, maybe like Djokovic, sometimes play better when they're angry or when they're frustrated. So it'd be really interesting to see a statistic on that, to see if there's like a common trend for all players or if it just kind of depends on the player and on their emotional state. So that's that's super interesting. Um, well, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Before we, uh, before we close, I want to know, your picks for the U.S. Open. We've seen two two rounds already, so you get a little bit of a sneak peek. You don't have to pick Simona Howup because she, she's already out. Um, who, do you, who are you thinking for the uh, men's and women's singles? Yeah, so we we um, did our, our predictions at the start of the event, uh, which went up. I, I posted some um, on Twitter um, at Stats on the T, my, my tennis handle, and then we also had a piece on the tennis – Smash site, which is a, a Tennis Australia run kind of news news site. And um, so on the men's side, um, I think um, Nadal, I would give the edge just given um, how tough that fourth quarter ended up on the draw. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so he would have been a strong favorite going in, but he definitely got help. In fact, we looked at, we do a kind of assessment of sort of the difficulty of each quarter at the start of the event. And the difficulty of that fourth quarter is like the highest I've seen in probably like the four years or so that I've been doing this wow. <laughs> uh, at any slam. So that was, that was pretty crazy. So I think, um, yeah, definitely um, Federer and Djokovic have to be bemoaning not only, <laughs> yeah. you know, the tough uh, conditions in New York this week, but also the draw that they got. Um, so I, yeah, so I think I'll, I'll give Nadal the edge uh, mm -hmm. still, even after these two rounds. And um, interestingly, Halep was our pick uh, for, yeah. for the ladies, but I think a lot of people were, were shocked by that one. Um, so I think now that now that's opened up and before, at, even at the start, I mean, it was interesting that among the top 10 top picks for the women, I mean, there was so little separating right. the other nine after Halep. And now like with her out, it's just like, it's wide really, open. you've got to feel yeah. like it's anyone's. But it, it was interesting to see, I will put out one player in particular was um, Kiki Burton's. I mean, she was like mm. right there at the top of the picks so I think coming off of um, a really successful um, kind of U.S. Open series for her I think um, that's an interesting potential first slam winner um, that's still that's still around so um, yeah so I'll definitely be following her and then of course you can never exclude Serena she didn't actually end up in our top 10 picks at the mm -hmm. start um, you know largely because um, she hasn't been playing a lot she hasn't really um, had to play many top players. And when she has, like she hasn't performed well this, this year so far. Right. So I think for those reasons, we're a bit pessimistic still, but Serena's done so many amazing things. <laughs> I wouldn't um, be shocked if she defied kind of the odds on this one as well. Right. Well, and, uh, and to be fair, I also picked help as well. So we can, all <laughs> we can all be wrong. She can, she, she has played a lot of matches, so I think fatigue was, was a part of it. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure having you, Dr. Kowalczyk. She she runs her uh, her blog on the T, and she works at Tennis Australia as a data, data scientist working on the cutting-edge um, statistics and analytics of tennis. So it was a pleasure having you, and until next time, we'll see you on the court.